Well, now we come to the part of the service where we open God's word and we talk about it and we think about it together. Even if you've never been in a church before, you probably know that's called a sermon. But let me explain what I hope to do over the next half hour or so, and really what we do every Sunday here at Desert Springs Church. We want the Bible, God's word, to speak to us afresh. We want to hear from God. We believe he still speaks today, even through this old book. And we want the Bible to be in the driver's seat as we do that. And so I'll read from the Bible and then try to explain it. I'll read some more from the Bible and then I'll talk about it some more. I'll read some more. I'll point down in our Bibles and and point some things out. No puppies will come out in the middle while I'm doing this. No Santa suit. No feats of strength. No pyrotechnics. I know it's terribly old school. But we want to learn about Jesus from the Bible. One of the ways that we take God's word seriously is by taking seriously the way the the Bible has come to us. It's not an encyclopedia with topics. It's not just random stories or stories and stories or, or discourses and discourses and discourses. There are 66 books in the Bible. I know it's confusing. There's one book called the Bible, and there's 66 in there, but it goes books and then chapters and then verses. And these 66 books all come from different contexts, time periods, meeting certain needs, and they have their unique purpose. They all complement each other, and yet they're each unique. And so Sunday after Sunday in our church, almost every Sunday, we're in one of these books, and we're working our way through it. We take a section from a story, And we read it together, we talk about it, and we try to live it out. We take a paragraph from a teaching part of the Bible, and we we read it, we talk about it, and we try to believe it and live it out. So we've been in the gospel according to Mark in recent days, and we're going to continue that tonight. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, most of what I read will be on the screens behind me. Now, Mark has 16 chapters. We're in Mark chapter 8. That's about the middle. And you might be thinking, isn't that a weird place to be at Christmas time? If, you know, this is about the Jesus story, are you in the middle of the Jesus story? Shouldn't you be at the beginning of the Jesus story? Yes, it, it is a little odd. But, but really what we're going to see in this passage that we've landed on tonight is that this is absolutely perfect for Christmas time. Because Christmas is infinitely more than just a story of one man's birth, mysterious and wonderful as it is. Christmas is a celebration of all that Jesus is and all that he came to do, all that he teaches and all that he is for us. And the passage that we'll look at in Mark 8 really cuts to the chase of who Jesus is. Really, Jesus himself in this story cuts to the chase with his disciples about who he is and what he came to do. He asks them two questions. The first one is interesting, but it's only important in light of the second question. The second one is massively important. So let me read a few verses here. Chapter 8, verse 27 And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. 
and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Two questions. Who do people say that I am and who do you say I am? Let's start with these questions first and then we'll read around before and after this section we just read in a little bit here. That first question, who do people say that I am, is still relevant today because the opinions just keep multiplying, don't they? Every Christmas and Easter, it seems that the the Discovery Channel or the History Channel is running some shows on who Jesus was. And they parade expert after expert in front of the camera to talk about it. And they say, well, this guy says this and another guy says this. and, And I like to think of Jesus as, and he didn't really say that, but he did say this. You see the same in Time or Newsweek around Christmas or Easter. It's only been half of a year or so and it's on the front cover again. Who was Jesus? You open it up and, well, there are experts. People say, people say, people say, and no answer. This week I was thinking about what I've heard people say about who Jesus is, and a bunch of M words came to mind. Some say he was just a man, a man whose birthday has been blown way out of proportion. Some say he's a myth. He didn't really exist even though we have more document evidence on his life than Aristotle's. Some say he's a moralist, a good teacher. You should listen to him. You should read what he said. Or a mystic. He gave us deep sayings and helps us get in touch with our spiritual side. Some say he was a militant. He attempted an uprising in a Roman world, but he pathetically failed. And some say he was a magician. It's the best M word I could come up with for this. He's a trickster. He's one who did, you know, flashy things, impressed people. Some called him miracles, but we know he was the first David Copperfield. The people in Jesus' time had various opinions of him, too. Here are four more M words. Some thought he was a menace that he was a threat to established notions of religion and national identity. He was a nuisance, a distraction that had to just disappear. Most often, people just thought that he was a mystery. If you read Mark 1 through 7, this is what you see most. Even among those that Jesus helped, even those who were impressed, the conclusion of the matter is that they're astonished. And not astonished in belief, but astonished, bewildered, confused, perplexed, mystified. And regardless, all who knew of him, all who saw him, knew him to be a miracle worker. It's interesting, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is no one who explicitly denies that Jesus has done miracles. Not his enemies who are trying to kill him. The question is not whether he's done miracles, but what it means and whether it's good. But that's interesting, isn't it? No one denies that Jesus did miracles. You'd think some guy would show up and say, yeah, 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 there was a a guy who he healed, but I saw that lame guy walking there. He was paid. There's nothing like that in the Bible. And many did think he was a messenger from God. There, I'm all out of M's now. He thought... They thought he was a messenger from God. We see that in verse 28. 
What's the word in the street about Jesus? Who do people say that I am? They told him. John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is dead at this point in the story. So maybe they think he's back from the dead. Or maybe, maybe Herod, who killed him, didn't really kill him. Maybe he's still alive, and that's Jesus. Others say Elijah, that great prophet of the Old Testament. That makes sense because Elijah did a ton of miracles. And so with all these miracles that Jesus is doing, people are thinking, is this Elijah back? And after all, Elijah never died. He was sucked up to heaven, and they thought he might be coming back someday. Maybe this is it. And others said, one of the prophets. You know, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel, just one in this line of many great prophets. He's one of the prophets. And that says something in a day when there are no other prophets around in Israel. So you might be thinking, okay, now we're getting somewhere. None of this moralist or mystic or militant or magician. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. I mean, if you're pro-Jesus, this sounds pretty good. It sounds like he's in good company. This is something of a hall of fame of preachers. And people talk like that, even today. Some try to give respect to Jesus by admiring his compassion or his moral fiber, or by saying he's one of the great prophets. But you know, that won't do. Jesus doesn't take that as a compliment. He doesn't say, eh, pretty close, 80%. I'll take it, one of the prophets, one of the best prophets. He's not just one of the prophets. On to the more important question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked the disciples. That's a personal question. And if you think about it, it doesn't matter what others think about Jesus. If he is who he said he is, then voting on him means nothing. Or siding with the majority means nothing. Each one of us has to hear that individual, personalized question. Yes, Jesus spoke it to the 12, but he meant it as a personal question, and hence Peter answers by himself. We should all in this room receive this as a personal question from Jesus. Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question you can ask. This question is the most foundational question according to Christianity. We ask ourselves varying questions, some little like, uh, where are my socks? Or some massive, uh, 19 years ago tomorrow, I asked my wife if she would marry me. She said yes. She wasn't my wife back then, by the way. She said yes, and that was a life changer, a game changer. It's the question, people said. Did you pop the question? Well, my wife would agree that this question is even of more importance than a proposal. Who do you say that he is? Do you know? Who is he? Well, we get an indication of who he is back one story. The Bible's a big book, and so you can use it to ask those kind of questions and answer questions that might arise in any one place. So look back in your Bibles, if you have it open, to Mark 8. And see, in verse 22, there's a story of Jesus healing a blind man that precedes this discussion about who Jesus is. I think it's an indication. So we'll start with questions, now an indication. Let's read in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, 
And some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. Well, how is this an indication of who Jesus is? Well, it's not revealing to us the Jesus that has a serious lack of hygiene sense. That's odd in the story, isn't it? I mean, it, it makes us just scratch our heads that Jesus spit in a blind guy's eyes. We don't know why he did that. We don't know why he did that. We shouldn't be that surprised. There are a lot of things about Jesus. We don't know why he did it or how he did it or, or what was going through his mind as he did it. That's the same for you. I can say, why did you do that? You go, I don't know. I just did it. Well, maybe he's got reasons we don't know about. We shouldn't be surprised. But that alone probably says something about the historicity and the authenticity of this story. I mean, if you were making up this Jesus stuff from thin air, you wouldn't do it like this. You wouldn't say, he spit in a blind guy's eyes and then rubbed the spit in. But it only worked halfway. He had to do it twice. <laughs> I think this is a real story. And it's an indication of who he is because it shows his compassion. It shows his power. He heals. He's the one who has power over nature, power over disease, power over brokenness. In fact, it indicates not just him as some sort of powerful being, but that this is a long-awaited time that's now arrived. You see, healing blind and healing the deaf is particularly significant in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus, verse, uh, chapter 35 of Isaiah said, Behold, your God will come. And then it said, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That age had come. Jesus' healings of the blind and the deaf are communication for everyone who's not healed. It's now, it's come. The Lord, your God, will come. In Isaiah 42, God speaks for himself and he says, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. Could that be why Jesus led this blind man out of his town and then healed him? Is it possible he had Isaiah 42 in mind? Not just healing the man like Isaiah 42 talked about, but leading him out. Well, Jesus often does that kind of thing. He has a, a, an Old Testament passage apparently in mind, and he's using language from that Old Testament passage, and then he also throws in some sort of action related to that Old Testament passage just to give us a wink that, that we know he's really talking about that. It's an indication of who he is. He's God. God has come. This time has come. But thirdly, it's also an illustration, staying right here in the same story. This healing of the blind man is an illustration. The man is literally blind, and yes, Jesus, I think, literally healed him. It's a miracle. But, you see, healing, healing blind in Scripture is oftentimes a, 
a description, an illustration for how God works in sinful hearts. You see, we're blind spiritually. We're deaf spiritually. And we're not just making this up, taking a blind guy, literally blind, and saying, oh, Jesus was teaching us something about spiritual blindness. It's not out of thin air. In that section I was just referring to in Isaiah, from chapter 35 to 55, there's all this language about Israel being sinful and blind. They don't see, they don't understand. Seeing and understanding go hand in hand. Jesus just did the same thing two stories before when he talked about, do you not see? Do you not understand? And so we're all born spiritually blind. And here's the the greatest problem with that is unlike physical blindness where you know you're blind, when you're spiritually blind, you don't think you're blind. You think you see just fine. And when people tell you you're blind, you refuse to believe it. But God can overcome that. God can overcome that. That's what this man in his healing shows us. It reminds us of what we Christians sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The healing is also an illustration of what's to come in Mark 8. It's an illustration that points forward. Now, that doesn't usually work. Usually, if you're going to use an illustration, you say a principle or an idea first. Then you go, let me tell you an illustration. Let me tell you a story, right? It's after the principle. Oh, but here I think the story of healing this blind man in two stages is an illustration of something that's going to come which we haven't seen yet. Hold that thought and we'll come back to it. First, there's something we have seen. It's the fourth thing in this list, an identification. An identification. Finally, there's a true identification of who Jesus is. He says, who do you say that I am? Verse 29, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Finally, someone gets it. I mean, if you've been with us in our study of Mark, you know the finally there is is huge. No one's getting it. No one's seeing it. No one understands. We, the readers, were told from the very first verse of Mark who this is. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And after that, no one until chapter 8 mentions the word Christ. Some demons get pretty close. They know he's the son of the Most High. They know he's the son of David. But everyone else is just amazed. He's a good teacher. He's just a carpenter. He's the master. He's bewildering. But this is the first time someone says, I know who you are, the Christ. And if you think that's Jesus' last name, then this isn't significant, is it? Christ is not Jesus' last name. His initials were not J.C. Christ means Messiah. It's a title. It's a lofty title, in fact. Messiah means anointed one, God's anointed, his anointed king, the promised king to come from the Old Testament, the one they've been waiting for, the answer, the conclusion of the matter, the one who is it. And finally, Peter gets that. He gets what these miracles have meant and what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom means. This is not Elijah. This is not John the Baptist. This is not 
just one of the prophets. He's the Christ. But then right on the heels of this wonderful confession, fifth, there's a prediction. A prediction. In verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, it's easy to overlook with all that graphic language. It's easy to overlook how Jesus addressed himself here. When he said son of man, he wasn't just saying some man's son. Again, this is a technical title. It comes from Daniel 7, hundreds of years before Jesus' time. Daniel the prophet had a vision of a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So when Jesus says that he's the son of man, and he calls himself that more than anything else in the Bible, He's referring to Daniel 7, the son of man who's been given a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a universal kingdom. And that's what Jesus' coming meant. Oh, we haven't seen it all yet. It hasn't hit on a visibly global level yet, but it's coming. It's true, it's here. But it doesn't seem to make sense, does it? The son of man who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom will suffer will be rejected by his own people, will be killed. And if that's not mysterious enough, that he'll rise. And he said this plainly. Yeah, it's plain, but it's tough to get, isn't it? And so as quickly as Peter is a hero who confesses the Christ, sixth, there's opposition. Verse 32 Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This must be a matter of seconds. You're the Christ. Jesus says nothing. In other gospel accounts, he does say, you got it right. Flesh and blood has revealed that to you. Uh, not flesh and blood. My father's revealed that to you. We know Jesus affirms Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus describes what's coming. Betrayal, arrest, Crucifixion and resurrection. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The one he just said was the Christ, the one. It's somewhat understandable. There was so much in the Old Testament about this one to come that looked very regal, that talked about taking out God's enemies, that talked about peace. And here is Israel, the time of Jesus, under Roman occupation, even tyranny. And they're longing for that release. They're longing for a rescue. And they're assuming that the Messiah to come will be that one that will, will gain that military victory and provide unparalleled peace in the land. It all seems to make sense. But the thing is, Jesus was coming to solve a bigger problem than the Roman government. He was coming to solve a bigger problem than the Roman government. And so he rebuked Peter back. Verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. 
Again, how fast this goes. Peter goes from the hero of the story, who's the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, to then being called Satan. That's pretty bad. You're Satan, Peter. You're, you're opposing God. You see, at best, Peter was trying to dictate to the Messiah what kind of Messiah was needed. He didn't think a dying Messiah was such a good idea. And humanly speaking, I think we'd all agree. But at worst, Peter was going against the plan of God, just like Satan did when he tempted, tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He, he threw a, a, a stick that way and you know, tried to get Jesus to go after it, and, and threw a bone that way and tried to get Jesus to go after it, tried to keep him from going to the cross to accomplish his Father's will. So here's where we can come back to the story of the blind man that was healed. Remember, he was healed in two stages. And remember, that's, that story is an illustration. He was healed in two stages. Jesus healed him once, and at first he could only see men like trees walking. That doesn't mean this was a particularly hard case to heal, and it took two healings to get his done. It doesn't mean that Jesus was feeling a little weak that day and tried his best, but well, the second time he got it. No, instead, this is a lot like Peter. That happens in the next scene, isn't it? The, the, the blind man. He's healed, and yet he can see, but not clearly. He sees men, but they're like trees walking. Peter, too, he understands now who Jesus is, but what he came to do is very fuzzy. In fact, he's against it. And that's why, by the way, that Jesus told the disciples not to tell anyone who he is after Peter says, you're the Christ. Right after that, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? I thought we were supposed to tell people about Jesus. Yeah, but, but people who know something about who he is and what he came to do. And if Peter and others go around saying, he's the Christ, he's the Christ, he's the Christ. But they don't think that that Christ is a dying Christ that does no good. They now understand that Jesus is the Christ, but they had a nationalistic and militaristic idea of what that should mean. So Jesus, from here, keeps repeating the same prediction. We're in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he does it again. The Son of Man is going to die. They're going to kill me. On the third day, I'll rise. And in chapter 9, it says, they did not understand, and they dared not ask him what he meant. Bad response, right? In chapter 10, Jesus gives another prediction, this one more thorough. We're going to Jerusalem, and I'll be betrayed. And the chief priests with the Gentiles are going to crucify me. And on the third day, I'll rise. And right after that, two of the disciples start fighting about who's going to get the left hand and the right hand in heaven. They clearly miss the point. They think we're going in, we're marching. We're, they're not thinking death, they're thinking exaltation for themselves. But he had to die. He had to die. Did you notice that word must back in the chapter 8 prediction of his death? The Son of Man must suffer. And in the Greek, it's he must be killed. He must. 
because of God's justice, because of God's plan, because it's our only hope. He must die. You see, we find out in chapter 10, verse 45, something of the why. Why must he? Why must this be part of the plan? Well, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's not just that Jesus knows the future and knows that the cross is ahead. It's not just that Jesus plans to let them do it because he's humble and meek. It's that there's a plan. And there's a plan not just to be a good example and turn the other cheek. It's a plan to be a ransom, a payment, a payment for sin. A payment for sin. You see, in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of guys who were forgiven by God, and yet they weren't perfect, they sinned. David's a perfect example of that. He's righteous most of the time, and he's had some doozies of sins along the way. How does a guy like that get forgiven by God? God just go, ah, come on in, you're a good guy. The balances are, uh, you know, in your favor here. Come on in. Is that just, though? How is God just and the forgiver of sinners? A payment had to be made. The Old Testament is like a, one big IOU, and Jesus came to pay it. In the New Testament, from, from this vantage point of past the cross, we look backwards at the cross and we see he came to be a ransom for many, a payment for sins. He came to die in our place. And that's why Peter can put it like this in his letter after he's been through it all and his eyes clearly see, he understands, he's had that double healing. He writes this in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the Christmas story right there. That's why he came. He came to be a payment for the unrighteous, as the righteous one. He came to suffer for our sins, that he might bring us to God. Who do you say he is? What kind of Messiah do you think he was? Maybe you see partially Maybe you've got Jesus' identity right, but you think this cross business, this cosmic payment thing, I'm not buying it. Well, you wouldn't be the first to not buy it. 1 Corinthians 1 says the message of the cross is foolishness to people. It's a stumbling block. They trip over it. But this is how God chose to save so that he would glorify himself and he wouldn't glorify human wisdom or trickery or slickness. Who do you say that he is? Think of all the kinds of questions that Jesus could have been asking the disciples on that day. So what are you guys like? Tell me. What makes you guys tick? Who's the real you? What do you want to be when you grow up? Where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? What really fulfills you? You know? What makes you who you are. Tell me about your parents and your childhood. Those are good get-to-know-you questions, but they're all about you. Isn't it loving that Jesus doesn't ask those kind of questions? He, he knows you. He does care. But, you know, he says to Peter and the boys, he says, who do you say that I am? That's what matters. Who do you say that I am? You got to get them right. You gotta know who he is and believe what he came to do and believe it was for you. 
Do you notice that Jesus doesn't say to these guys, how do you feel about me? He doesn't say, what does the public think? What, what, what are my ratings these days? Instead, he said, who do you say that I am? That's personal, isn't it? Again, each one of us should receive that question and begin to answer it. Hopefully you can answer it well. I'm sure many in this room would say, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll keep looking, keep thinking, keep walking with him in the story. Come back next Sunday. We'll open God's word again and we'll, we'll do this again. We'll talk more about God's plan. Who do you say that I am? Isn't it interesting? Who do you say that I am? Really say here, you could think belief, right? Not who do you feel that I am? How do I make you feel? It's who do you say? This is content. This is truth. These are facts. Who do you say that I am? Not who do you want me to be? Tell me what you think you need. Who do you say that I am? Well, we pray that you know this one who is the great I am who came who lived righteously, who died sacrificially, who rose victoriously, who now lives forevermore, who's adding to his church one by one, who's calling all with this question, who do you say that I am? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He does give rest, but Christian, we should also remind ourselves of this, that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the conclusion. He is it. He is our Lord. This is a lofty thing that we've placed ourselves under the Christ of all ages, the Christ of all peoples, nations, and tongues, the one who has everlasting dominion, whose kingdom will not fade away or fail. So you can trust him, and you should. You must bow before him. Let us walk in his ways. Let's commit to that afresh. Let's pray to him often. Let's teach our kids how great he is, how faithful he's been. Let's pray and ask for his help now. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you on this Christmas Eve. Thank you for who you are. We thank you for your coming. We thank you for far more than just a birth, but the whole grand plan. We thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know exactly what kind of Messiah we need. We need one who doesn't defeat other enemies, but knows the enemy of sin and can defeat it for us by dying in our place and raising on the third day. We pray that all glory would go to you. We pray glory in our homes and worship in our lives would be plentiful in this next year we pray we would cast our burdens on you often we pray we would speak of you faithfully that we would seek to spread your praise abroad for others to come to know who you are why you've come what you did and what it means may we tonight be forever changed by the truth of who you are and what you came to do the lamb who was slain, who's making all things new. We're thankful, Lord Jesus. Amen.